This is Existential, a podcast where I shoot the shit about how we shape our life's own meaning on this random ass planet and do so without miserably copy and pasting someone else's life or drowning in a pee infested pool of personal responsibility anxiety. I'm Talia Pollock, an author, columnist, and lover of the yoga pose pigeon. I've been questioning the meaning and mocking the absurdity of life since diapers, and I've been writing about it since tampons. If you're a millennial going through an existential crisis or just a regular damn Tuesday, I am oh so glad you've landed here. Oh, and hey, did you know that dolphins have existential crises too? Yeah, they wonder if their life has a porpoise. One thing you should know off the bat is that I'm not here to give advice. I hate doing that. It gives me the heebie-jeebies, which always sucks when I take a personality or character strengths or Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, ideal career, or like, what character in the Handmaid's Tale are you, Tess? I'm making it sound like I do them quite often, which is the truth. And I'm asked, what kind of advice do people always come to you for? There's no multiple choice option for, um, nothing unless we're counting helping my husband with anything Bluetooth related. So I always have to pick something, which feels like rounding up in a way. The truth is I 0% of the time give out unsolicited advice. I even have a hard time giving solicited advice, which is why I get super sweaty when anyone asks me for directions, even if I'm dead sure I'm right. Like, I can see the Starbucks up ahead. But giving out guidance has always felt like too much pressure. Maybe it's because I'm pretty empathic and focused on the fragility of life. So if I advise someone to order the pesto and artichoke pizza and they do, and then they think it's just meh, I get racked with so much guilt that they wasted precious living time on a meh meal because of me. Or maybe it's because I actually don't like taking advice myself. Like, I still get a pit when I stumble upon my two dusty pairs of wedge sneakers, which I was advised were timeless, practical, and could be dressed up or dressed down. Or maybe my aversion to asserting advice is simply because my suggestion for every single thing is the same. Windex. Okay, is that big fat Greek wedding joke reference retired? Was it ever really in business? But really, my suggested solution for everything is what does your gut, your soul, your inner truth, your personal genie, your telepathic cat say? A friend asked if they should post photos of them looking gorge at a wedding on Instagram, and I said, what does your gut say? A stranger asked if they chose a good color for their pedicure, and I said, do you like it? They said, yeah, it's cool, and I said, then it's great. And my sister once asked if her dating profile was good, and I said, okay, give me your phone. I'm rewriting this entire thing for you, because I make up for my dislike of advice giving with my gusto for word editing. Now, I do feel immensely grateful that there exist people who enjoy giving advice. Like, it's hella helpful to know how to gua sha my squint wrinkles away. I refuse to call them frown wrinkles because I got them from squinting. My eyes are very sensitive to the sun. Or give advice for how to keep a snake plant alive or a newborn human. I appreciate people sharing best practices for layering rugs or pairing wine with curry or using credit card points to snag airplane tickets. But questions like, 
Should I break up with him? Should I get a dog? Should I get a lob? Should I give my dog a lob? And I'm out of there. But you know what flies out of me like a swarm of moms on Black Friday when stores were in person before COVID? Stories. Stories feel safe. They are safe. No one can tell you your story was wrong or led them astray or caused them to waste 108 minutes of their life on, and I quote, a mediocre movie whose payoff is worth less than a Forever 21 sweater, said about M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. I'm sorry. I liked that psychologically metaphorical deep-layered film. Sharing a story instead of administering advice is like the difference between describing your thrilling time at Tsunami Surge versus shoving someone down the water slide and yelling, trust me, as they tear out of eyesight. Honestly, I have no clue if that analogy makes any sense. Okay, so let's get smarter for a minute. A Spanish philosopher named Baltasar Gracian, that was horrible, once said about giving advice, When you counsel someone, you should appear to be reminding them of something they had forgotten, not of the light they were unable to see. How I digest that is, we each have a ton of inner wisdom that's as unique to us as the thumbprint that opens our iPhone, or clears us from a crime, or makes an adorable fridge display worthy Thanksgiving turkey. The best thing a teacher can do is inspire and nudge and empower us to access our own inner wisdom, unless you're teaching organic chemistry. I don't think we're born with innate wisdom for whatever you learn in organic chemistry. And in my opinion, which has been backed by study after study, the best way to inspire, nudge, and empower peeps is to tell them stories. But stories also have profound personal powers. A psychologist named Dan McAdams at Northwestern University is an expert on something he coined narrative identity. Narrative identity, or NI for short, as I like to call it in my rap videos, is what he describes as an internalized and evolving story of the self that a person constructs to make sense and meaning out of his or her or their, I added that, hashtag woke, life. Another way to say that is, so that every day in our life isn't just some rando, we each decide how to string days together so our existence makes at least a little sense as one big story. Not surprisingly, McAdams found that people tend to focus their stories mainly on their most extraordinary events, good and bad. It's kind of like you Instagram or Facebook stalk yourself, like how you look at all of someone's squares and little snippets and we use our own lens to make up a story about them. You know, like right before you're meeting someone. And we do that to ourselves with our own little squares and little snippets. This is different than racking up double taps on our curated life snippets on social media. This is deeper than that. I know, deeper than Instagram. Shocking, right? Instead, creating a narrative identity is about introspectively and imaginatively interpreting our pasts to develop stories that help our life feel more understandable and more meaningful. It's not dissimilar to that famous Steve Jobs quote, you you can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking backward, so you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. Okay, two majorly interesting things, among many, I'm sure, but these tickle my fancy, that the psychologist McAdams discovered happens when we connect our dots. First, our unique interpretations of our experiences may and likely will differ. 
Emily Esfani Smith, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time called The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters, explains this concept like this. She said, and I'm paraphrasing, for one person, a childhood experience like learning how to swim by being thrown into the water by a parent might explain their sense of self today as a strong entrepreneur who learns by taking risks. For another person, that being chucked into the water experience might explain why they hate boats and hoes and do not trust authority figures. And a third person might omit that experience from their life story altogether, feeling it's unimportant and completely unrelated to who they are today. As McAdams said, we are all the authors of our own stories, and we can choose to change the way we're telling them. Okay, and here's fascinating thing number two. McAdams found two main genres, I'll say, of stories that people tell. Redemption stories and contamination stories. The former being like, Bad shit happened to me. Example here, example there. Oh, and here's a regretful thing I did. But ultimately, this positive thing resulted from all the negative crap. And so here's the meaning of how I grew, yada, yada. These redemption storytelling people he found feel very confident, loved, and like their lives are very purposeful as they're actually more driven to contribute to society and help out future generations. Alternatively, contamination storytellers, as I'm sure you can guess, are folks that interpret their lives as going from yay to nay with no meaning, no way. These storytellers tend to be more anxious and depressed and generally feel like their lives are just a series of random, inconsequential, non-dot connectable events. Okay, last thing I'll say on this topic, although I hope you find this as freaking interesting as I do. If you do, can you let me know? either by emailing me at thing at taliapollock.com or leaving a post, uh, a comment below this post if you're reading it. I just want to know. So McAdams and other psychologists have found what writers like me already knew to be true. There's always room for edits. They found that people's lives can be significantly impacted by making even minor tweaks to their personal narratives. Literally, as Emily writes in The Power of Meaning, through editing and reinterpreting a story with a therapist, the patient may come to realize that they are in control of their life and that some meaning can be gleaned from their hardships. A review of the scientific literature finds that this can be as effective as antidepressants or cognitive behavioral therapy. Wowie kazowie. I mean, who knew that a word processor's little underlines could help us avoid needless commas and lasting emotional pain? So after so long of pretty much only interacting with my plants and pets and partner, I've been out and about meeting a lot of new groups of folks lately. I started my master's program. I went on a women's writing retreat. I joined a new medical practice. And I began going to our small town events to socialize with stranger neighbors whose upper face I sort of recognize from a year of masked street waves. There's been a lot of introductions, meaning a lot of opportunities for me to craft, revise, edit, and tweak my personal narrative. And so here's roughly where I've settled. Since I could read and write, I haven't stopped. Words to me are like fire to a nympho. I mean pyro. 
In college, while majoring in journalism, I learned there's a style of writing that magazines and newspapers and book companies publish that actually isn't based on thrice fact-checked facts or textbook grammar or scaring the shit out of people to rack in the ad bucks. Humor writing. Humor writing came to me naturally and passionately, and when I, when I discovered it, a la my school's newspaper's weekly humor column, and then further in David Sedaris' essays and Chelsea Handler's first books, and I tried it on for size, I felt like I'd found an arm with whom I'd been separated at birth. My quickie credo about humor writing is that it's truth-telling that can heal. We laugh at what we can relate to, and when we can relate, we feel less alone. To me, that is pure magic. So a few years out of college, after doing stand-up comedy, interning at Adam Sandler's production company, working at The Late Show with David Letterman, I decided I wanted to pivot out of the humor a la scripted Hollywood situation and scooch myself more into the truth-telling that heals arena. So this is when I started Party in My Plants, my humorous, healthy-living brand, platform, Business, I I honestly still have no clue. It was 2014, and going into a coffee shop, like asking for almond milk, would have yielded you the same expression back then as going into a gap asking for the boys' clothes will yield you in five years. You wait. Gendered sections are on their way out. I am predicting it now. So it made perfect sense for me to blend my chops for comedy with my chops for chopping kale. And so that is what I did. I immediately started in my wheelhouse, writing pieces for Mind Body Green, which at the time was a humongous deal in the world of wellness and in the world of Talia. All I can say that happened next is that I woke up many blurry years later and realized I'd been Bachelor franchised. Like a cute, naive girl used to go on The Bachelor, motivated by love, but then came out the other side mistaking fame and likes and moolah for love. I think that's what happened to me. I started partying my plants with my true values intact and then got swept away in the social media rat race and lost my anchor. I imagine this is quite common, right? I mean, it's like a millennial's American dream story, except instead of waking up at age 55 thinking, why the F did I waste my life climbing this corporate ladder? It was an age 30, why the F did I waste my 20s chasing likes? And that's what led to my existential crisis, my complete unraveling. I had hustled my way from some mind-body green articles to a dozen Dr. Oz appearances and video features and bustle and AOL and Mashable, a top-rated healthy living podcast, and at the tippy top, a major published cookbook with my face and my body on the cover, with which my face and my body debuted live on Good Morning America, complete with some minutes of, on the Times Square TV screen and all. I realized I was standing on the top of a mountain I had zero desire to be on. And there was very little oxygen up there. So I had a hard time breathing and I felt very sick. So I did a deep clean of my life and my soul and my home and my car and a bin of dusty free health food samples. And I had to put words to the fact that I had strayed so far from my core values. And then I had to give myself self-compassion up the wazoo. After that came a long pause before anything else. 
we call this my Ellen Hildebrand period, where I just laid on our couch, our window seat, our floor, and read every one of her, I think, 27 rom-com beach-based fiction books. Okay, they weren't really calm, mostly just rom. But reading hours and hours of fiction for the first time since high school brought me into worlds outside my current one, which helped me start to reconnect with long-lost values. During this time, I also got diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder, which had been with me my whole life, but only got the attention it deserved when I had paused long enough to attend to it. This diagnosis is what has enabled me to actually discern what kind of life I want to live. And I realized that I actually don't enjoy living from highs to lows like a goddamn yo-yo, thank you very much. Remember yo-yos? I actually saw a kid yo-yoing the other day, and I wanted to, like, run up to him and give him a hug and be like, good for you, dude, for choosing this mindlessness over technological mindlessness. But my whole life, people had touted my high energy. So I not only believed it was my best trait, but also like a kid whose family are all doctors, I felt like I had to be a doctor. I mean, I felt like I needed to be an endlessly energetic star. But I started to realize that with my bipolar, the highs I would experience that led me to make my quirky, crazy, fun YouTube videos and funny Instagram stories, for example, were actually me not being well. Like it's not a healthy place for me to go up that high because what goes up must go down. And I would go down way lower than I'd ever go up. And then sometimes when I'd be down, I'd still have to maintain my image of up. So I'd have to dig deep and manufacture it, phone it in, kind of like put on a Talia performance. And that was sure as hell exhausting. So I paused. And this existential pause of mine overlapped with the world's gigantic pause, which I think is actually more common now than not. E2? So then I wrap up my whole nice to meet you story, yeah, we're still there, by saying that eventually with self-compassion and acceptance and introspection and with the help of meds, therapists, and many, many long walks, I found my way to my healthiest self and I set out to reassemble my core values and live accordingly. And I'm now in a place where family members who haven't seen me in years comment on how they love the brightness and exuberance and sincerity of this new Talia, to which I say, no, 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 no. This is true Talia. You know, really thinking about it, my problem with advice is that the advice giver's values inform their advice. Again, this isn't for step-by-step, like how to you know, hang a gallery wall or skate backwards or make your own sourdough donuts. But our values color our counseling for the big things like, should I prioritize finances or freedom? Should I start a family? Which cheese is better, gorgonzola or burrata? I'm team gorg because my value is flavor. Thank you very much. I do not understand burrata for the life of me. See, life is so stinking subjective. So my hope with this show and newsletter and books and future endeavors together is to advice freely remind and nudge and excite you to, similar to what Barney slash Neil Patrick Harris says in How I Met Your Mother, value up so you don't get blown by the wind or get bachelor franchise baby and always dwell consciously and comfortably in all facets of your life for the right reasons. Well... 
Thank you so much for listening to this second episode of Existential. Your excitement over this new show has been palpable and appreciated. Feel free anytime to reach out to me at thing at taliapollock.com. I would love to talk further with you about all this jazz. And I'm still troubleshooting how to have a healthy, respectful relationship with social media. So I'm really hoping to spend most of my time connecting with you via good old fashioned email. If you're a millennial, you'll remember the thrill of your very first, you've got mail. And now you know the dread of it. But hopefully emailing with me won't be dreadful. So if you want to get my frequent-ish, remember the whole bipolar thing, emails with all sorts of fun, meaningful things that I'm hoping to be like an orange tic-tac in your inbox, something delightful, refreshing, and peppy, scroll down to the show notes and click the link that says, get my newsletter, or go to taliapollock.com and click the same kind of button. All right, thank you, have a great day, and I will talk to you soon.